This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In 1920, an event took place that would forever change the religious landscape of the United States and other Western countries as well. It was then that a rather unknown Hindu monk, Swami Yogananda, under the auspices of the Unitarian Church, sailed from India to Boston to address a congress of clerics and theologians. He ended up making the OS his home, only once returning to India in the following decade. He founded an American branch of his organization in India, the Yogoda Satsanga Society, and translated it as Self-Realization Fellowship. It continues to this day to disseminate the teachings of this extraordinary man. Among Yogananda's goals was to explain the intricacies of the Hindu Dharma in a way that Westerners could understand. He taught meditation and other yogic practices to adherents of all faiths or of no faith, he had no ambition to convert people out of their birth or chosen religion, but was constantly requested to impart elements of his tradition to people who felt there was something lacking in the spirituality of their own faith communities. Along with the teachings of the great Hindu sages such as Shankara, Patanjali, Lord Krishna, and Rishi Vyasa, Yogananda also acknowledged the veracity of the wisdom of the Jewish prophets and Jesus. He interpreted the biblical message in a way that would show an underlying unity between the Vedas of India and the Judeo-Christian thought. As you would guess, to one who embraces what we refer to as historical Christianity, these views are nothing short of heretical. But to many who have had uh, no difficulty accepting the basic tenets, or rather who have, have some difficulty accepting the basic tenets of mainline Christianity, Yogananda's esoteric understanding of Christ's message strikes a very powerful chord. By the time he died in 1952, he was referred to as Paramhansa Yogananda, Paramhansa is a Hindu honorific title that supersedes Swami. He left such a voluminous collection of writings that SRF is still in the process of editing and publishing his essays and commentaries. And it was only last year that his writings on the Bible were released under the title The Second Coming of Christ. To speak to us about this hoary tome, and it is indeed a hoary tome, is a monk of the self-realization order, Brother Chidananda, who was part of the editorial team that put this two-volume set together. Brother Chidananda, who is with us by telephone from Los Angeles, has been a monk in the self-realization monastic community for more than 25 years. He was born in Maryland, and he was raised in northern Virginia and San Diego. He received his Bachelor of Arts from the University of California, San Diego, where he majored in sociology with a specialization in social study of religion. And while in college, he also did graduate-level field research in sociology and anthropology in Central Africa and California on emerging religious movements. And currently, Brother Chidananda serves as senior editor and assistant to the editor-in-chief of SRF Publications. He's an ordained minister. He is also known as Swami Chidananda. In, in the West, uh, monks in the self-realization order tend to go by either brother or sister. But Brother Chidananda is with us, and uh, Brother, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Fred. Nice to be with you. Boy, this is a, quite a work. Uh, when I refer to it as a hoary tome, and I think you would agree, a lot of people would, would look at it. I mean, this, this book, The Second Coming of Christ, the, which is commentaries on the Gospels and other parts of the Judeo-Christian Bible, I mean, it's as big as, as any Bible, correct? I mean, it's a two-volume set, and I don't... How many pages is it, you know? Well, it's just under 1,700 pages, so two, two large slipcase volumes, and yes, I think tome is a good word for it. It's, uh, it's really interesting because when you look in the New Testament, in the four Gospels, and you see that all of the recorded sayings and teachings of Jesus that have come down to us over the years, it really fills a uh, pretty slim little volume. But to really unfold the depths and the significance and the, the full meaning of those, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda uh, ended up uh, giving us these two tomes, as you call them. Right, and uh, sometimes he will spend pages upon pages on, on one thought, 
I, I seem to remember that uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, his commentaries on that, I think he spent something like 40 or 41 pages on the first verse alone. So he, he will we'll spare nothing to make sure we understand everything that he, he wants to say. Exactly. And not only that we understand it, but also because that's really a characteristic of revealed scripture, let's call it, the, the revelations of divine consciousness that are in the holy writings, the holy books, the scriptures of all world religions. And that characteristic is that literally pages and volumes of truth are compressed into these very pithy and uh, pregnant with meaning uh, aphorisms or statements of truth. Right. I believe Patanjali uh, refers to them as sutras, threads, uh, real, real, real short sentences that can be expounded upon in, in great detail. That's right. Patanjali in the, in the Indian tradition, and uh, really Jesus had very much the, a similar style to that. He would have uh, one or two sentences, for instance, the kingdom of God is within you. And to really fully understand, to really explore and understand how that can become an experience for you and for me, then there's, there's literally uh, uh, great, great profound depths of truth in those few words. Now, to be honest, I'm, my guess is that most people who would review this, this work, people in the field of religion, people in academia, they would not consider this book a scholarly work. Would you agree with that? Well, yes and no. I would say certainly yes, because it was never the intent of the author to produce a scholarly work. And uh, that's why you see uh, on, the, on the front of the book, part of the title, uh, it's referred to as a revelatory commentary on the original teachings of Jesus. And uh, Paramahansa Yogananda uh, was certainly not a, a scholar. He didn't get his information or his insights into the teachings of Jesus Christ through um, a comparative study or from going to a university. He had it through an experiential, or as the, as the term on the book is, a revelatory, an inner revelation based on his experiences in deep states of meditation of those truths that Jesus was talking about. So uh, while he didn't intend it as a scholarly work, I say yes and no, well yes, uh, in the sense that uh, much of modern scholarship, very interestingly, and particularly in the five decades since Paramahansa Yogananda passed away, uh, more so every year, we find that the scholarly trend, both in the study of religion and in the uh, scientific uh, advance of knowledge overall, that these uh, points that he brings out from the teachings of Jesus are more and more resonating and more and more finding confirmation in scholarly research and study. So you're saying that uh, some people who have devoted their lives to uh, learning Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and, and studying the latest uh, archaeological finds and digging deep in first century writings of the, of the Church Fathers, you're saying that they may be lacking where Yogananda might have have a clue into some particular element of the life of Jesus. Yes, I think that's an accurate statement, and that's not to diminish the uh, the efforts of the uh, scholars and the scientists and the researchers, because they're doing tremendous work, very valuable work, in unearthing uh, what we might call the early history or the roots of the Christian teaching. But uh, what no scholar could touch or or approach is a whole other experiential dimension, which is really where the, the main import of Jesus' teachings lies, in not just a series of, of statements or stories or parables or ideas, but a living experience of that expanded state of divine consciousness that Jesus, that was his whole work, to impart that to his disciples. And so now, from the space of almost two, over 2,000 years, we need to look back and say, how can those states of consciousness that Jesus spoke of and that his own disciples experienced, how can that become a reality for me? And that's Yogananda's main intent in unfolding the uh, commentaries on Jesus' teachings. So let's say we presented uh, these volumes to somebody who was entrenched in serious academia. 
and isn't quite a fan of relevatory experiences. You know, this this person wants to see fifteen hundred footnotes <laughs> after sure. after every commentary. Um, is there anything that, that you can that you can point out right now that says, well, this is what Yogananda said back in nineteen forty five. And this has, now we have evidence from academia that, that says, well, there might be something to what he said back in 1945, where we didn't have the research back then. You right. see what I'm saying? Right. No, there, I, I, I could go on for long, much longer than the hour that we have, a half hour we have available today. Uh, but let's just start with, with one that we touched on a minute ago, and that's the, the experiential dimension of Jesus' teachings. And by experiential, I mean... For instance, in his saying, "The kingdom of God is within you," what, what does that mean? What does that um, what does that imply? And what Paramahansa Yogananda brings out is that uh, this is, in essence, the same teaching as the ancient Indian path of yoga. In other words, of realization or communion, personal communion with the divine consciousness, which is within each one of us. Now. Uh, to go back to your question about uh, how would scholars today uh, find any common ground with statements like that. Well, it's really interesting because, um, you know, let's, we have to keep in mind that the vast majority of people today are looking at Christianity, at the teaching of Jesus, even the, um, the whole uh, story and history of Jesus through a lens of 2,000, 2000, of year, 2000 years of changes, 2000, 2000 years of um, translation and development and, I would say, distortion of what that early teaching, that direct teaching of Jesus was to his immediate disciples. Now, much of this was lost in the centuries after uh, the time of Christ, but it's only been in the last 50 years one very, very significant discovery that scientists made in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and is still being unfolded today, is uh, what's what we call the lost gospels, or the, the Gnostic. Gnostic is a word, uh, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. It means knowledge or experience. And uh, it was in about 1945 that um, researchers came across a uh, hidden... Um, had been stored away in the desert in Egypt uh, from about uh, three or four hundred A.D. Uh, lost texts from the earliest years of the Christian movement, and uh, scholars, uh, for instance, you have uh, Elaine Pagels of Princeton, uh, many others who have written about this. That their books are uh, readily available, and what they find in there is exactly this experiential dimension, this more meditative. Um, this emphasis on um, personal experience of those high divine states of consciousness uh, which is more, very much in line with yoga. Right, a more mystical understanding exactly. of, of the Gospels. Exactly. Mystical is a good word. Another, another way of saying it is that uh, there's a, an inner side and an outer side, or what we might call an esoteric dimension and an exoteric or outer dimension to what Jesus gave. And really, most of what has survived is the outer. The inner is what you find, for instance, uh, in these uh, lost Gospels that I've just mentioned a minute ago, but also in the teachings of the great um, saints and mystics of the Christian tradition all down through the ages. St. Francis, St. Teresa, Meister Eckhart, all of those who had that interior experience of the Christ consciousness. Yeah, there really seems to be quite a resurgence of writings on, on... Uh, the people you've just mentioned. Uh, by the way, I, if people are just joining us, I want to remind you that you're listening to WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella. The program is Common Threads, and we're speaking with Brother Chidananda about a book that he had a hand in editing, The Second Coming of Christ by Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, if we were to... Well, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. I've seen some of the promotional literature for the book, and it, it claims that this is perhaps an, um, a work that could serve in harmonizing the, the uh, philosophy of the West and the philosophy of the East, correct? You, exactly, okay. exactly. In fact, that was really one of Paramahansa Yogananda's main intents in bringing this out. 
his whole point of view, which is actually also the point of view of the traditions of, of Indian spirituality going back for centuries, is that to talk of um, these boundary lines or divisions between different religions, this religion or that religion or this denomination and that denomination, all of that is very superficial. It's, it's all on the, on the level of the outer uh, understanding of what the great prophets brought. But if you go deeper, and by deeper, meaning into that personal experience of those states of consciousness that Jesus and Krishna and Buddha and the great saints and prophets of all the great world religions uh, that they were speaking of, then you find that there's total harmony, perfect oneness, because how can there, if there's one God, one spirit, which of course there is, then how can there be uh, divisions or, or, or uh, disharmony when you get to that level of truth? Right. But my, my point is that if you gave the book, The Second Coming, to a Hindu, somebody who's never heard of Paramahansa Yogananda, but just say, here, read this and tell me what you think, the teachings are pretty much fully in line with what that person would already believe. If you gave the, the book to... Uh, someone who is a Christ, a mainline uh, Christian, you know, somebody who believes in the historical Christianity as has come down for 2,000 years, that person, to accept this, would have to really reevaluate everything he's ever thought about Jesus, correct? Well, yes. Uh, for I would say yes, that's true for most of uh, mainstream Christianity, Christianity today. However, uh, I think the reason for that is very interesting, and that's that um, if such a person were to go back into the very roots of their own uh, tradition, into the teachings of Jesus, and also go into the, uh, the writings and experiences of the great mystics and the great saints of the Christian tradition, then they would see that, there is, that what uh, Paramahansa Yogananda is bringing out here is exactly their own teaching. Let's talk a little bit about who Jesus is or who Jesus was uh -huh. uh, from Paramahansa Yogananda's uh, point of view. Now, Yogananda refers to Jesus as an avatar. Right. I have come across two definitions of avatar through reading uh, uh, Hindu texts. And one of them is very, very close to the Christian definition. That is to say that it is actually God in human form. The difference between a Christian understanding and a Hindu understanding might be that uh, uh, Christians believe that God only appeared once on this earth in the form of Jesus, and in the Hindu tradition uh, they would say that he's appeared a number of times. But it's still God himself or itself appearing in human form. That That's one... Yogananda's version is a little bit different. Uh, he would say that we're all incarnations of God, and avatars are simply those who have reached a stage of enlightenment and who did not have to reincarnate, but have come back because of a compulsion to aid humanity. Do I have that right? Yes, that's, that's very well expressed. And uh, particularly, you brought out the two points that I think are really important here. The first one being that um, really from the point of, of um, ultimate reality, God is appearing on earth in each one of us. Because you, you have right from the very beginning of the Bible, in, in the image of God, we are all created. Right. But, but an avatar is somebody who's a little bit special because that person, he or she, has come to realize that fully. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And that's, that's the big difference is, what's, you know, you can say that God is appearing on earth in each one of us, but obviously... Uh, there's a tremendous difference between the ordinary person walking on the streets uh, and a Jesus Christ or a Bhagavan Krishna or, or a Gautama Buddha. Uh, and as you say, it's, it's simply a difference in how much do we know of what we really are, how much do we realize and experience and uncover that presence of the divine within us. Right. So my question is this. Sometimes in reading portions of the Second Coming, uh, I've been a little bit confused because sometimes Yogananda tends to refer to Jesus as someone who was already fully and wholly enlightened. Yes. At the same time, he says that uh, uh, Jesus was not just a, 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 I forget the term he uses, but somebody who went through the motions of a life, 
that right. he did have his struggles and that the crucifixion allowed him to become even more united with this this cosmic consciousness so i'm i'm curious if you have any insights in in terms of uh where jesus was spiritually was he in fact perfected and had no real need for any further spiritual struggle or were there elements of his life that he did have to go through right okay, did he have any karma question. did he have any karma the idea of karma right that's a very that's a really interesting question and uh, the short answer is yes he was a full avatar which means that he had become completely free completely liberated in a previous incarnation uh, had attained that final oneness with God and then when he came back onto earth in the form of, called Jesus Christ uh, took on that human body but in doing so you have to realize that 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 means uh, to fully participate in this world of duality this world of delusion even to take on a physical body necessitates taking on uh, a little bit enough of that uh, karma enough of that you might say buying into the material reality of the earth in order for him even to exist in a human body so while he was completely free as and came back as an avatar all avatars who incarnate in a human form necessarily take on a degree of that of that delusion a, a degree of that uh, um, subjection you might say although completely voluntary subjection to the karmic laws, the, the laws of that govern this uh, material plane. Which essentially is for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. Right. Karma, uh, exactly. And, and so just by acting in uh, uh, teaching and, and the different activities the, uh, that he undertook, um, you know, to, to use your example of, well, what, why did he have to undergo the crucifixion and why was that as a result of his karma? Um, in one sense, yes, because it was a reaction. It was the the uh, the outcome of many of the actions that he took. You know, riling the authorities, uh, stirring up a uh, sort of a new teaching, you might say, that was in many ways um, threatening to the uh, to the hierarchy, the religious and social and political hierarchy. Um, so, yes, in that sense, his crucifixion was was the reaction. From the cause, or you might say the karma, from what he did uh, in his teaching mission, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't an avatar. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, I believe so. That begs the question: Then, is there at any point in his life, or in the lives of any of the other people that you've mentioned as being avatars, such as the Buddha, they have? Was there any possibility of them ever falling from their exalted state? No, no, no possibility. Once, once. Uh, an individual such as Christ or Krishna or Buddha has attained that final liberation, then it is exactly that final liberation. There's no possibility of uh, falling again into ignorance or delusion. So we have the stories of, of uh, say, Buddha being tempted by, uh, I believe the, the person is named Mara, uh -huh. and we have the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the desert. Uh, um you're saying that at that point there there really was no full opportunity for for either one of them to to succumb to well to this. Let, let's put it this way uh, we all have free will and uh, Jesus in that situation in that in those temptations in the wilderness by Satan certainly he had free will he could have chosen uh, had he wanted to to succumb to those temptations so it isn't as though it's a, a physical impossibility it's just that uh, in his state of consciousness, he had already seen through that delusion that Satan was offering him, and having the comparison of that that state of God consciousness, uh, it it would have been an impossibility in the sense that if somebody put in front of you two choices and one was so vastly superior, then you would say, well, it's impossible that I would choose the other one. Uh, in other words, it isn't physically impossible. There is that potential for you to choose it, but you never would. You know, I have a question now, but keep in mind we've just got about three minutes left. But since I, I mentioned Satan, can you talk about Paramahansa Yogananda's understanding of, of who Satan is or what Satan is? How, how does it differ from the, uh, the uh, Orthodox Christian understanding? 
Sure, yeah. Satan, and that's a, it's a very misunderstood, uh, and at the same time, it's a very cosmic principle. Because on one level, you could say that Satan is that which keeps our consciousness separate from God. That's in the most simplest sense. That's the, that's the function of Satan. Why? What's the difference between a, uh, a Jesus Christ and the ordinary person uh, uh, living his or her life in the world today is simply because an ordinary person has this veil of ignorance, this veil of, of apparent separation from that divine uh, consciousness within, within them. Uh, that's what Satan is. That's what, that's what Satan's function is, is to perpetuate this uh, illusion of separateness, you might call it. So, in thinking about it in terms of, of a real person is, is not where Yogananda is going with this concept. Well, yes, uh, there's that element to it as well, because um, if you think of Satan, or in the Hindu term, you, you can use this word maya or delusion, uh, it's a cosmic principle that, um, that holds us back from realization or awareness of, the, of our divine nature. But at the same time, it becomes a very personal force in the lives of those who are uh, really making an effort to to have that divine oneness. In other words, somebody who is making an effort at spiritual progress, and particularly when they get very far along on that path, on that in that spiritual evolution. Paramahansa Yogananda said then, at that point, that uh, satanic force, or that force of maya, takes a personal uh, expression, just as we see in the life of Jesus, where that, that satanic force actually took a form and was tempting him to forsake his God consciousness. You were able to do that in less than three minutes. God bless you, brother. <laughs> Listen, we are out of time for uh, this week's uh, program, but I'd like you to come back next week and we'll continue this uh, fascinating conversation. Oh, I'd enjoy that very much. Thank you. Uh, uh, brother Chidananda, would you uh, give us any contact information if people are interested in, in learning yes, more about uh, Yogananda's the best, thing to, the best thing for people to uh, get into, to explore these more deeply, would be to begin by reading Paramahansa Yogananda's Life Story, which is Autobiography of a Yogi. Uh, that's published by Self-Realization Fellowship and is available in any of the major book chains anywhere in the, in the country, anywhere in the world, Autobiography of a Yogi. Uh, we also have a website that has information about Paramahansa Yogananda and his teachings and the techniques of meditation that he taught. And I'll give you the uh, website address. That's www.yogananda-srf.org. That's okay. www.yogananda-srf.org. All right. And I believe you have a number for a local uh, chapter here. Right. Our, our uh, Self-Realization Fellowship Meditation Group there in Grand Rapids, telephone number is 451-8041. It's 451-8041 for the Grand Rapids Meditation Group of Self-Realization Fellowship. Well, thank you, Swami. I appreciate that. And we'll talk to you next week. I'm Fred Stella. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue.
Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In the mid-1920s, the noted Hindu yoga master Swami Yogananda, who would later become known as Paramhansa Yogananda, began including an article in his organization's magazine, each issue that would provide esoteric commentary on the words of Jesus. The series was known as the Second Coming of Christ. According to Yogananda, the master from Galilee never intended to convey to his disciples that he would literally reappear on earth, but that each person could receive the Christ consciousness. Perhaps a close comparison might be to say that one could awaken one's own Buddha nature. Those who live by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda have been waiting for over 50 years for those articles to be edited and published in book form. Well, last year, the Guru's spiritual heirs, the Self-Realization Fellowship, released The Second Coming of Christ to the General Public. We're happy today to continue our conversation with someone who worked on the editorial team of this project to tell us some of the details of this two-volume set and how being involved to such an extent affected his spiritual life. We're talking with Brother Chidananda. He is a monk in the Self-Realization Fellowship Monastic Order, and he has been in that order for more than 25 years. He was born in Maryland. He was raised in Virginia and San Diego, California. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of California, San Diego. He majored in sociology with a specialization in the social study of religion. And while in college, he also did graduate-level field research in sociology and anthropology in Central Africa and California on emerging spiritual movements. Currently, Brother Chidananda, whose name means Bliss of the Divine Consciousness, serves as senior editor and assistant to the editor-in-chief of SRF Publications. He's an ordained minister, a swami, and he's also a member of the SRF International Publications Council. And for over 15 years, he's assisted in the editing of several writings of Paramahansa Yogananda. And he joins us today by telephone from California. Brother Chidananda. Yes, good morning, Fred. Nice to be with you again. Yes, thank you. Nice to have you back. Uh, last week, we covered a, a lot of ground on this, uh, on this work, The Second Coming of Christ. And I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to touch on something now that we also mentioned last time. We talked about the crucifixion briefly. And I, I simply wanted to get a, a clear understanding, because we've been talking about the esoteric understandings of a number of the stories in the Bible versus what has been commonly accepted for most of 2,000 years. And one of the things that tends to uh, really be the, the most important element of the gospel story to many Christians is the concept of vicarious atonement, that, that Jesus, when he was crucified, took upon all of the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, and that allowed them access to heaven. Now, this is not quite the, the, the idea that Yogananda had when he writes about the crucifixion from, from what I've read. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, right. As you say, this is, this is something that's really been uh, quite misunderstood, uh, not probably by, or certainly not by the direct disciples of Jesus during his lifetime, but a misunderstanding that was introduced really centuries later and has come down to us during these 2,000 years of changes and modifications and adaptations of what Jesus taught. Uh, the crucifixion uh, really had two major uh, points of significance. Certainly there's this idea of atonement uh, from the yoga tradition or the tradition of India spirituality. We would express it by saying that Jesus took onto himself uh, a great deal of the karma. Uh, in other words, the uh, sin isn't really quite a, a, a uh, equivalent, but it's probably the closest we can come in the Christian terminology, that he took onto himself the karma or the sins or the, the burden of ignorance uh, of his own disciples. And a, a great master such as Christ uh, or any of the other uh, great prophets of the world religions can do that. They can, it's, a, it's as though somebody has a, um, like for instance, say your children have incurred uh, some bad debts, they've spent too much money, they've made bad decisions, unwise decisions, and you, uh, you want to really bail them out, so to speak. You can take onto yourself the burden of those debts and pay them off. Well, 
in uh, that's analogous to what this process of atonement is when a uh, a Christ a Krishna a Buddha does that for disciples literally transfers to his own body his own consciousness that burden of sin that burden of karma of the disciples now this certainly occurred in the uh, in the life of Christ and relative to his um, his close disciples this is why we find uh, right after the crucifixion and, and the resurrection of Jesus we find those uh, somewhat ordinarily appearing individuals the the disciples that we read about in the gospel stories all of a sudden they have this tremendous transformation of consciousness and that's recorded in the in the story of Pentecost where uh, they were literally in that state of spiritual ecstasy, spiritual divine union, divine consciousness. Uh, but to to um, to say that any one act, such as Christ's crucifixion, had that effect on all future and all past uh, human beings is really a misconception. And that's why the whole import of what Paramahansa Yogananda is bringing out from Jesus' teachings is is not so much a matter of belief. It's not so much just saying, um, I accept uh, the truth of what I read in the Bible. Instead, he said the most important thing is to experience what's written in the Bible, experience that transformation of consciousness that those disciples of Jesus also uh, experienced. And the way to do that is by meditation, by definite techniques of, uh, that have been preserved in India that were taught by Jesus to his direct disciples, but then we're lost sight of down the course of the centuries. It's that transformation of consciousness that's really important. Now, in the more liberal or some say progressive schools of Christianity, uh, uh, I think a lot of people would uh, agree with much of what is written in the Second Coming. However, you would part company with a lot of liberal Christians when it comes to the notion of the resurrection. But uh -huh. Yogananda believed in the resurrection, did he not? Very much so. In fact, he describes it in, uh, in great detail, uh, not just as a historical reality, but going into the uh, spiritual principles, the metaphysical principles that Jesus would have used to accomplish that resurrection. But uh, I think one of the differences between Christianity and the Hindu Dharma is that in Christianity, this is a very unique experience. Other than other than uh, Jesus, and of course anyone who whom Jesus may have have brought back to life, uh, it it just doesn't happen. Whereas in India, uh, resurrection is I wouldn't want to call it commonplace, but there are a, a number of saints who uh, tradition claims uh, resurrected themselves from from death. Correct? That's right. One of them is the uh, the great uh, medieval master in India called Kabir. Uh, and that that was really in historical times. It was just in uh, well the fourteen fifteen hundreds, and uh, that was very well documented historically. Where um, that uh, and then Yogananda also writes about a number of uh, occasions in his own life with the great masters that he was personally associated with, where he was blessed to witness uh, their appearance after physical death. And really, what this gets into is is um, it's not just the resurrection, but all of those so-called miracles that we find in the gospel stories, and we tend to think, or those uh, brought up in, a, in the Western or Christian tradition, you tend to think that, uh, that these were unique, that Jesus was the unique Son of God, and he demonstrated that by these tremendous um, and unexplainable supernatural events. Well, in the tradition of India, they're not unique at all, because uh, science of yoga, science of... of um, Hindu spirituality explains that these are really based on definite and known laws, uh, laws of matter and energy and consciousness. And yoga brings about an experiential awareness, an experiential mastery of those laws to the degree that anyone who is advanced or an adept in that science of yoga uh, would be able to, to perform all of those same miracles that we see in the life of Jesus. And in fact, uh, many, many of these are uh, described by Paramahansa Yogananda in his life story, Autobiography of a Yogi. If uh, somebody from a more traditional uh, branch of Christianity was to uh, look at this book without a whole lot of explanation, 
One of the things that they might charge is that there's quite a bit of, of cherry-picking. That is to say, well, let me ask you this question first. Of the four Gospels, could you give us a percentage uh, as to how much of these four Gospels is in the Second Coming? Yes, I, I'd say it's very close to 100%. But at the same time, of course, uh, uh, the Christian community, the historical Christian community, also considers the rest of the books in the the Bible, both the the Jewish Bible and the and the Christian uh, the New Testament. They consider them to be all inspired, and Yogananda gives very little, comparatively speaking, uh, attention to say the books of Paul, the books of Peter, uh, uh, Acts of the Apostle, a little bit of uh, of Revelation. So, what did Yogananda think of the Bible as? as a volume? Well, that's a great question, really interesting question, because and I, I think to answer that, first of all, we, uh, we have to remind ourselves that what we call the Bible is not something that uh, Jesus or his direct disciples themselves put together. That, uh, as I mentioned last week, um, scholars now know because of archaeological discoveries and, and different things that have been unearthed uh, in the last few decades, that uh, there was a, a, a great number of texts, what we might call Gospels, that, uh, that are not part of what we today uh, hold in our hands as the Holy Bible. In other words, that, um, uh, that process of, of winnowing out uh, what was going to be part of, considered part of Scripture and what was going to be excluded uh, this was a, a very, I won't, don't have time to get into it today, but it's documented in this book about how there were really many, many other Gospels that are not part of uh, what we today uh, term as the canon of Scripture. And uh, the point here being that uh, Yogananda decided to focus on uh, the four Gospels in this book because those were the closest that we have to the actual sayings, the actual teachings of Jesus. And uh, uh, certainly there's much of value in the epistles of Paul, in the, uh, in the writings of the other disciples, and so on, much of value, and perhaps some that's, um, that's not as easy to relate to what Jesus himself was teaching. But uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's whole emphasis was on Jesus himself, and the Gospels are our link, uh, to those teachings, to those sayings. And now Yogananda passed away in 1952. Did he have any opportunity to uh, read the Gnostic Gospels? I mean, they were they were unearthed in the 40s. I don't think they were even translated by the time. That's right. Well, uh, the only one that was known to, uh, to the public at that point was some very fragmentary excerpts from what we call the Gospel of Thomas. Now, again, that's one of these lost Gospels. It's not... Uh, not part of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, just a few pieces of that were discovered in the late 1800s, and Paramahansa Yogananda had, uh, had seen some quotes from that. Uh, but as you say, the, the vast bulk of them weren't discovered until the late 1940s, and then they were never translated into uh, English or any other language until after Yogananda's passing. Tell us uh, something of the process the, uh, of this process and what it was like for you to be a part of it. Uh, I mean, people uh, have been waiting for this for so many years, yeah, and yeah. I, I would imagine that uh, this consumed a, a great deal of your time for... Uh, how many years would you say that you've been a part of this? Well, uh, about seven years before it, uh, it went to the press, and uh, it's, it was a tremendously rewarding experience. It was just... Uh, being immersed in this, as you as you see when you see the finished product, there's it's a voluminous, literally, uh, wealth of, of divine inspiration is the only way to describe it. And uh, the process really uh, consisted of uh, well, let me back up a little bit because to understand how the book came about, um, you mentioned in your uh, in your little introduction to the show about how. In the 1930s, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda began in uh, serializing uh, commentaries on different parts of the gospel in Self-Realization Fellowships magazine. So that went on for about 20 years, uh, up to the time of his passing. But in addition to that, 
there were uh, really about 30 years worth of classes and lectures and uh, essays and writings that he had done at various times since coming to the United States. And his instruction at the end of his life, when he realized that he wasn't going to be able to uh, have the time to see this book put into final form, his instruction to those close disciples that he was working with, and who later became the uh, the team who put this book together, were to take all of his writings, all of those uh, serialized uh, commentaries in the magazine, and also all of the uh, lectures and essays and uh, various things that he had um, left explaining the teachings of Jesus and integrate it all into one comprehensive presentation. And that's what we have in the second coming of Christ. So it wasn't simply a matter of getting those old magazines and, and just reprinting all of the articles as they were. No, that would have only been uh, a uh, relatively small portion of it. Maybe uh, maybe a little less than half. Uh, speaking of, um, you mentioned that he did this to the end of his life. I happened to see the um, a copy of the March, March 1952, and I know he passed away in uh, in March of 1952. That's right. And and that month's uh, article was was entitled "The Final Experience." It was about the death of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, was that purely coincidental, or or whatever word you want to cosmically ordained? Uh, because obviously the March issue must have must have uh, come out before March. Right. Uh, no. It, well, it probably came out right about in March, but. Yes, it was, that certainly wasn't something that uh, that the magazine staff had planned um, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, the series had been going along, as I said, for about 20 years, and that was just the next uh, logical installment in the series. And secondly, uh, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's passing was, was really quite a surprise and even a shock to most of his followers. Uh, he, was not a, he was only 59 years old, and... Uh, those who were closest to him, uh, he had told them that he was, he had given them advance warning because he knew himself the time and the date and the circumstances where he would be leaving his body. But um, uh, certainly to most other people, this was a, a huge surprise and couldn't have been coordinated with uh, uh, having that story of Jesus' death in the magazine in that same month. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Brother Chidananda from Self-Realization Fellowship, and we're talking about the book The Second Coming of Christ by Paramahansa Yogananda, uh, for which uh, Brother Chidananda served on the editorial team. And, and about how many people did you say were, were on that team with you? Basically three, and, and uh, I was the, what you might call the junior member, very much so, of the team. The other two were... Uh, among those disciples that I mentioned a few minutes ago who were with Paramahansa Yogananda uh, for quite a few years and right up to the end of his his life, and they were those to whom he entrusted this responsibility of uh, finishing the uh, compilation of this work. Mm -hmm. uh, going through the book, I, I see that there are th three main philosophies of the of the Hindu tradition that that play into this. Uh, Shankya, Vedanta, and, and Yoga. Could, could you expound a little bit about, uh, about those three different schools of, of thought? Sure, right. Well, first thing to say is that these, uh, these systems of, of Hindu thought or Hindu philosophy, uh, these go back thousands and thousands of years long. Uh, in fact, scholars are really not able to even agree how far back they go, but certainly many centuries and even perhaps millennia before the Christian era. And uh, the three that you mentioned, Sankhya, uh, Vedanta, and Yoga, those were the three that uh, Paramahansa Yogananda um, really based his comparison of Hindu thought and, and the teachings of Jesus. I think it's, the easiest way to understand them is that uh, the way he put it was that uh, Sankhya, the philosophy of Sankhya, really gives the metaphysical uh, background, the laws and the principles um, about creation, about uh, the nature of, of human beings, the nature of the soul, the nature of the divine, um, really spelling out all of that profound metaphysical uh, understanding of uh, our physical and our energetic 
and our uh, dimension of our being, which is pure consciousness, and how all of that relates to that absolute spirit. Uh, Vedanta is a, uh, a philosophy that really describes um, what the goal of human existence is, the goal of spiritual striving, which is that absolute oneness with spirit, oneness with God. And in fact, uh, statements such as Jesus, where in the Gospel he says, I and my Father are one. That really is Vedanta, in a, in a nutshell. Jesus was teaching that exact same philosophy, which means that I, as an individual, an individual soul, in the ultimate reality, when I really know myself, when I really um, experience without all of the overlays of delusion and restlessness and bad mental habits, then I realize that in my inmost essence I am absolutely one with that infinite eternal spirit. So that's Vedanta, the, um, the goal of, of religion, the goal of, of uh, human existence, really. And yoga... Yoga, you might say, is the, is the practical side of it. Yoga is the how-to, and uh, where Sankhya and Vedanta explain the uh, philosophical and the, um, the principles and also the goal, yoga gives you the methods of how to achieve that. Methods meaning uh, the actual techniques of meditation, where the consciousness is, is expanded and taken in, withdrawn from uh, its restless. Uh, misperceptions of reality and brought to that point of complete stillness within as in the Bible we hear be still and know that I am God that's yoga and I think some people still might be focusing a bit on uh, or, or, or wholly rather on hatha yoga we have to be clear you're not talking about hatha yoga here yeah. at this yeah, point yeah good point hatha yoga of course is just uh, you might say it's it's really uh, a tiny slice of the whole system of yoga. It re- that's the part that focuses on physical health, uh, flexibility, uh, uh, all the physical exercises. Yoga, though, is so so much more vast and, and profound than that. The word yoga really means union, and that's exactly what I was describing a few minutes ago. It's that union of the individual with that infinite divine consciousness. That's what yoga is all about. Brother Chidananda, it's sort of a tradition on this show that I, I like to delve into the personal spiritual journey of, of my guests at some point. Uh-huh. And so if you would be so kind, just uh, give me a, 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 the, the, the two-minute version, I think, of uh, how you came from, from just uh, a student at the University of California in San Diego to a member of the Venerable Swami Order in Self-Realization Fellowship. Sure. All right, well, here goes, in two minutes or less. <laughs> um, I was raised in the in Christian tradition, Catholic Church, but um, from the time of my uh, teenage years, I suppose, um, I began to be uh, looking elsewhere, looking outward, looking for something more. And uh, I think, with, just like with many people of, um, you know, nowadays in, in uh coming from, uh, from various Western religious traditions, uh, there's a sense that, well, where's the experience? Where, is this, where are these states of consciousness, these states of, of fulfillment, these states of uh, actual communion with God that religion talks about, but that nobody really seems to know how to access or how to experience or how to teach others how to experience? So... Uh, in my last year at the university, I, I had been actively searching, uh, looking into different things, and I came across um, Paramahansa Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi. And uh, by the way, this is by far the most common way that people uh, are introduced to the teachings of Yogananda. I read that book, and I really couldn't put it down. I, I think I read it pretty much straight through uh, with just um, the minimal interruptions and just feeling like, yes, this is it. This is what... This answers so much that I, I had been looking for, that I had been uh, knowing that these answers had to be out there somewhere. And here they were, page after page after page. And so very quickly after that, I, um, I found from Autobiography of a Yogi that Self-Realization Fellowship has a series of lessons, home study lessons that are mailed out from the headquarters in Los Angeles that give this science of Kriya Yoga meditation which was really the, um, the uh, essence of what Yogananda taught in terms of the how-to, 
In other words, this is a system of, um, of techniques of meditation that uh, can be practiced, that we practice uh, uh, morning and evening of every day and gradually find that that gives access to those interior states of divine joy, divine bliss, divine peace and communion that uh, all of us have been looking for. So after studying that for um, a year or so, uh, I then became aware that uh, there was also a, um, the opportunity to live in one of the ashrams in the monastic order uh, of Self-Realization Fellowship, and uh, that's a pretty small percentage of the, uh, the overall membership of, of SRF, uh, but uh, those that are monastics, that are monks and nuns, really devote all of their time, all of their lives, to practicing and living and um, seeking God through the path that Yogananda brought, and also to serving those who are studying and following his teachings all around the world. Now, it says in your biography here that you did uh, work in sociology and anthropology uh, on emerging religious movements. Is this how you happened to come across it, or was this out, outside of that study? No, it, uh, it, it, it really wasn't part of what I was studying in college, uh, although um, that certainly gave me a lot of background that uh, when I did find the teachings of SRF that led me to uh, appreciate uh, how perfect this was for me. But no, no, I didn't, uh, I didn't uncover or I didn't contact SRF as a result of my uh, university courses. So can you give us any clue as to what might, uh, might be in the offing in terms of, uh, of the writings of uh, Yoganandaji? Is, is, uh, are you working on any project that you're able to talk about now? Well, there's a number of things that, uh, that are coming forward. Uh, in fact, one of them I want to go back to uh, something we were talking about a few minutes ago where you were asking why in this book um, it focuses mainly on the Gospels, but what about the rest of the Bible? Um, uh, first of all, I wanted to say that uh, uh, throughout the uh, commentary on the Gospels on the Second Coming, there are many, many links both to the Old Testament and to other parts of the New Testament. For instance, um, uh, passages where the, those Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, who Yogananda said were speaking from that high state of divine illumination, the same state that the great masters of yoga were saying were speaking from. And in fact, when you go back to the Old Testament, um, the very beginning, the book of Genesis, which is a, uh, a description of, uh, of how God, how spirit, evolved out of itself, himself, herself, uh, the whole universe, the whole material creation. And uh, Yogananda gave some very interesting uh, elaboration and commentary. Uh, you know, nowadays we hear so much, in fact, uh, it's really, uh, literally, it's in the news just these last few weeks about the, um, you know, the conflict between evolution and creationism or intelligent design and which should be taught in the schools, and a lot of it really focuses on uh, what do we make of this book of Genesis. So this is uh, what Yogananda said was rightly understood those great profound meta metaphysical principles that are encoded or expressed metaphorically in Genesis. Uh, when you understand them correctly, they exactly tally with what modern science would tell us today. So hopefully... Uh, we'll have a little bit of reconciliation brought by a deeper understanding of that uh, at some point. And he also uh, spoke um, to some extent about the last book in the Bible, Book of Revelation. And, you know, here again, uh, this is something that's been largely, almost completely misunderstood by, uh, in the popular culture, of, uh, that this is a description of uh, the tribulations and the... Uh, the end of the world and the and the physical return of Jesus to Earth. Instead, instead, Paramahansa Yogananda said, "This is a really profound treatise, metaphorically again, metaphorically expressed, of the deep inner experiences of yoga." And let me give you just one example of that. If we do, we have time for that. Actually, we don't. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, but uh, that you've. You've given us something to uh, to look forward to in the future, and perhaps when that is out, we can have you on again. 
and we can talk about this. Uh, I'd look forward to that. But, but for right now, could you give us uh, SRF's uh, website if people uh, would like any more information on the Second Coming or other writings of uh, Yogananda? Right. On the Internet, uh, it's www.yogananda-srf.org. That's www.yogananda-srf.org. And then also in Grand Rapids, we have a Self-Realization Fellowship Meditation Group, and I'll give you the phone number for that. That's 451-8041. 451-8041. Well, Brother Chidanata, it's been a wonderful couple of weeks. I, I thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure, Fred, and I hope we can get together again. This is Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.